Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Scripture is full of prayers. The Psalms, or the prayer book, even the hymnal of the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses, the prophets, the priests of the Old Testament, they prayed. King David prayed. The disciples even asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer. From every book, from Genesis to the end in Revelation, God's people are in prayer, and God gives us prayers to use in his own word. John 17, as we heard today in the Gospel reading, God himself prays. Jesus takes an entire chapter to give us the words of a prayer. The prayer of Jesus to the Father. The prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples. The prayer that Jesus prays for each of you as well. It's often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. For good reason, too. Like the priests of old, Jesus is better, of course. A perfect high priest. He intercedes for us without fail. Without dying, in fact, dying and rising. So he lives as an eternal high priest. He is also our mediator. The one priest who is able to lay down his life as sacrifice for our sin. To make his death count for our death. His life count for our life. His blood to cover our sins. And now as he lives and reigns and is ascended, he intercedes. He prays on our behalf. Now it's true, it's a great comfort when somebody else, one of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ says, I will pray for you, or you are in my prayers. But of course we know our prayers falter and flounder, and if they are good and help our brother or sister in Christ, how much greater then is it to know that Jesus, who prays perfectly, constantly prays for you? Because Jesus never forgets to pray. He never fails to pray for exactly what we need. He faithfully, in fact, prays for you. And John 17 tells us what he prays for. He prays for those who will believe in me through their word, as he says. What word is that? It's the Apostle's word, of course. Which is another way of saying, really, it's Jesus' word. That faith that comes as gift through hearing. Hearing through his word of Christ, as Paul writes. Jesus is praying for you in this prayer, then. Praying for us today as we hear his word read, as we sing it, as we hear it preached and proclaimed, as we pray it. In fact, any time and anywhere we read, mark, learn, inwardly digest his word, Jesus is praying for you to hear it, to receive it. And he prays not only that we believe his word, but that we believe it based on what he has said, not on what we feel, or what we want to hear his word say, but that we would have faith and trust in his words that he delivers, not our own words. You see, it's Jesus' word that declares to you, baptism now saves you. It's Jesus' word and promise that says, your sins are forgiven. It's Jesus' word that gives us this, his New Testament, in his body and blood for us to eat and drink. It is Jesus' word that promises it will go out and it will not return void or empty, but it will accomplish the very thing he purposes. It will do what he says it will do. It is through Jesus' word that he gives you faith and trust in him, 
even as he prays for you in John 17. But Jesus prays for other things too. He prays that we may be one. He says, Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they, that is his people, us, may also be one. He prays for you again here in this way. In other words, for all Christians, that we would, that we would all be one. One as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. That's what we confess when we confess in the Creed. This divine, mysterious reality that Jesus, who is God of God, light of light, He is very God of very God, begotten, not made, He prays for us that this oneness that is in the mystery of the Trinity would also be ours. That may be one of the more difficult parts of this prayer to understand. After all, when we look around at the world around us, at least in the Christian church world, or take a brief stroll down history for a little while, it's pretty apparent that we in the Christian church on earth are not one. There have been, there are divisions in the church, and there were since the days of the apostles. There will be until Jesus returns. It's unfortunate, sometimes necessary based on what is confessed about the word. And it's not what Jesus intended, of course. So we pray with Jesus and long for that day when the church will be one as he prays. And yet when you look over the last 2,000 years or so of church history, if you consider all the things that the church has gone, that it began with that 12 apostles and disciples and grew to 120 believers gathered in a room on Pentecost Eve, it's a miracle that the church has managed to survive throughout the long, hard centuries. Empires have come and gone. Nations have fallen, risen, fallen and risen again. Great cultures have reached their pinnacle and then disappeared from the face of the earth. Antagonists have risen up. Islam, and communism, atheism, pietism, rationalism, agnosticism, and skepticism postmodernism, all sorts of isms. There have been enemies from within the church too, heresies and false teaching, egocentric leaders, corrupt pastors, faithless people. 2,000 years or more of mismanagement would have been enough to drive any other organization on earth into extinction long ago. But of course, by God's grace, the church remains. And for this promise that Christ would build his church on that same confession that Peter said, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that not even the gates of hell would prevail against his bride, the church. See, Jesus promised to always be with us, to dwell with us and to be present with us and to pray for us. And so Jesus prays for his church as a loving husband prays for his wife, for his family. Because our Lord is one flesh with us. Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. And so he prays for us. He prays for the church. He prays for you. Jesus also prays for the world. That the world would believe that you sent me. He prays that we, his congregation, here in Milton, here in Beautiful Savior, would be an outpost for the gospel, a safe haven, a safe harbor of his forgiveness for all people. You see, that's why our congregation exists, for the benefit of blessing in the world around us and for our people gathered here together today, just as Old Testament Israel 
was called into existence and loved that they might be a benefit and a blessing to their own people but also to the world around. See, lastly, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, they may see my glory. He's talking about his disciples again, which means he's also talking about us, his church. That the glory you have given me, because you have loved me from the foundation of the world, that glory would be ours. This is a rather loaded word in the Old Testament. This word, glory. It comes at us like a big freight train barreling down the tracks, loaded with Old Testament promises. With the places where God acted and dwelled with and for his people. In the tabernacle, in the temple, in the covenant. Wherever God's glory was, God was present with his people. He was there for them. Think about how it happened at Mount Sinai. Think about Aaron and the priest in the tabernacle. Think about Israel as they marched and were led before them by the pillar of smoke and fire. That's the glory of the Lord. That was Jesus leading his people. It is this glory that belongs to Jesus from before the foundation of the world. And yet for our sakes, God in all his glory, in his majesty and power, comes and dwells among us in his own humanity. The glory of God is present in Jesus, in human flesh for you. That makes that holy, awesome power of God accessible to us, that God is no longer hidden in smoke and fire or the brilliant lightning and clouds of Sinai, but now revealed to you in Jesus. The glory of God made flesh for you. His word, his body, his blood, his glory revealed in the most unexpected places of all, on the cross, where he also prayed for you. And his glory that now comes to us in his word. You see, in everything he does, Jesus prays for you. Even now, at this very moment, he lives to intercede on our behalf. Unlike our prayers, Jesus' prayer never ends. So when we're receiving his gifts here as we are today, and as we will in a few minutes, Jesus is praying for us. When we are serving in our vocations at church or work or home, or simply out enjoying his creation and the gifts of life, Jesus is praying for you. When you fall into sin, give in to temptation. Jesus is praying for you. When you're at a routine doctor's visit, or receiving treatment, or undergoing any kind of surgery, Jesus is praying for you. When you're feeling despair, or depressed, or downtrodden, or overwhelmed by a world that is full of wickedness, Jesus is praying with you. He's praying for you. When you are talking with your neighbor or your family or friend about what it is you believe as a Christian, and maybe you don't know what to say or how to say it, Jesus is praying with you and for you. Today and always, Jesus' promise to be with you, as he said to the disciples, still stands. It always stands, just as today and always, Jesus prays for each of you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.